been a um, week and a half since I've been able to preach, and I don't know if I can still do this or not. I have to get back in the saddle here and figure out if I still know how to preach. But uh, it's good to be back on Wednesday night, and I'd like you to open your Bibles, if you would please, to Philippians chapter 4. And I always find it a pleasure to get into this study of Philippians on Wednesday nights and the other studies that we've had, because I find that Wednesday nights we end up reinforcing a lot of the themes that we study on Sunday mornings and on Sunday nights. And it's amazing as we go through the epistles and uh, as we've been through now a couple of the epistles of Paul on Wednesday night, it's, it's really amazing to see how that Paul follows along with the themes of Jesus' teachings. And we might very well expect that because uh, the New Testament is all about Jesus Christ and the apostles spent their time expanding and expounding the things that Jesus said. And so it's no accident that we run across the very same things in the book of Philippians as we would in the gospel accounts where uh, Jesus, of course, is preaching to the people. And I, I might add, by the way, that for a long, long, long time, we are going to be in the book of Matthew. And so that is going to overlap much of the studies that we do on the other evenings or on Sunday mornings, uh, rather Wednesday night and Sunday night, I should say. It, it, it's going to overlap for a very long time. So we will have instances where we come across the very same themes, and you'll notice it particularly in the next month or so as we finish out Philippians and also uh, in, in the Sermon on the Mount on Sunday morning. Now, one of the reasons that I mention this is because this particular text that we're reading tonight really has Sermon on the Mount implications written all over it. And we're going to see how things correlate to the Sermon on the Mount in just a moment. But you'll notice the title of the message tonight. Uh, there's a little arrow between the two parts of the title of the sermon, Right Thinking and Right Practice. When Brother Dalton was printing up the prayer page, I asked him, I said, can you be sure to get that arrow in there? Because the arrow has some significance about what I want to say tonight. And what I've done is I have written the title of the message like a chemical equation. If any of you have ever had chemistry, you know that when you see an arrow in a chemical equation, it means that the combination of the first part yields the second part. And that's the theme tonight, that right thinking yields right practice. It's a parallel theme to what we discussed in Ephesians, if you remember, that right doctrine yields right practice. Now, I've said that this uh, particular message has Sermon on the Mount implications because Jesus addressed a group of people on the Sermon on the Mount, on the, in the Sermon on the Mount, whose thinking was very seriously wrong. They were very wrong about what Moses had to say in the law. And so what Jesus spent his time doing in the sermon was correcting their thinking. And when thinking is corrected, it would end up with what Jesus said in the first part of Matthew 5, in the first part of the sermon, the people would have kingdom characteristics. They would live out the Beatitudes. When you have right thinking, you are going to end up with right practice, and there will be the proof that the person is a kingdom person. So we want to look at this tonight. We're going to see how that verse number 8 that we studied a week and a half ago, or, or two weeks ago, I should say, translates in to verse number 9. Now, let's stand, if you would, please, and we're going to read verses 8 and 9 to Philippians chapter 4. 
Paul says, finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. Those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for... Uh, Wednesday night, thank you, Lord, for the time we have to spend together and for those who have come to hear your word. Uh, Open up our hearts to the message tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I'm not a preacher that's very big on illustrations. And you'll notice that when I preach, I don't often use illustrations. And you probably heard me complain on many different occasions that I think that our Baptist colleges that are training young preachers are not really training them to be expositors of the Word of God. Instead, they teach them how to tell stories and how to give illustrations. And, and uh, the sermons end up being three illustrations that are linked together with two scriptures. I don't want to do that. And the reason that I don't is because I uh, think that you're well capable of understanding the Word of God when it's broken down into its parts. And if you listen for a while, you'll start to get the picture of what I'm talking about and put things together yourself. And you really don't need me to constantly break things down to put it on a kindergarten level so that you can understand the Word of God. So I don't use a lot of different kinds of stories and illustrations for that purpose. But if I'm going to use an illustration, uh, if I'm going to use one on this text, I'll give you just a very brief one about how we can compare verses 8 and 9 to something. Uh, If I was going to correlate this to some type of an illustration, I would say that verse number 8 is like gasoline. It's like the fuel that goes for the engine of your car. If the fuel is contaminated, the engine doesn't run right. It spits and it sputters and... If you're not careful, it's going to break down on you. Now, that is the concept of these two verses in two ways. The first one is that you have to have the right fuel to go into the car, and that correlates to right thinking. And the second is that you actually have to operate the car. Now, uh, putting fuel in the car is verse number 8. Operating the car is verse number 9. Verse 8 is about the right kind of fuel. Put the right kind of fuel in so that you can operate correctly. And verse number 9 is that when you get that fuel in there, just don't sit there in the car, start it up, crank the engine over, and get going. So verse number 8 is fuel. Verse number 9 is about the action of it. And so we see here in verse number 9 that Paul is dealing with the action part that goes along with verse number 8. And if our thinking is right in verse number 8, then our actions are going to be right in verse number 9. Now Paul, then after all the doctrinal considerations that he's given in the book of Philippians, after he's dealt with all the problems that he had to deal with, he now tells the Philippian people to let the gospel permeate them. Let it control their lives. Now, that's what I want to look at first tonight. How the gospel controls our lives. The control of the gospel. What are we going to get out of the gospel? Well, I think most of us, probably the first answer that we would give to that question is that the gospel is for our salvation. We get our salvation from the gospel. The gospel also has a forensic aspect. That simply means that it has a judicial part, and that is where we are justified from our sins and we're made right with God. The gospel is about the forgiveness of our sins. 
It's about the removal of the guilt that we have of sin. And it's about the removal of the obligation to punishment. The gospel is the salvation, so it saves us from our sins. And that is truly a wonderful aspect of the gospel. And I spend a great deal of time talking about that. I speak about justification on many different occasions because if you don't get what the gospel is all about and what the gospel does for you, how it justifies you, then everything else that we talk about from the scriptures is moot. You'll never understand any of it. We spend a lot of time talking about justification from our sins because there are so many people that misunderstand the truth of the gospel and what it really means to believe in Christ. But then the gospel also has another part. It has a sanctifying part. That's the part that is about our holiness. It's the way that we live every day. So the gospel is really not something that you add to what you already are. The gospel is not something that you tack on to the lifestyle that you've been living. The gospel is something that changes us. It permeates us. It influences everything that we do. So the gospel is our life. And in the realm of control, the gospel is everything to us. Now, I want to tell you, first of all, this evening, what the gospel is not. And then I want to talk to you about what the gospel is. The gospel is not a new set of laws. The gospel is not a list of new things for you to do in addition to the Ten Commandments. Now, that's what a lot of churches want to do with the gospel. Uh, They want to make a new list with the gospel of Christ. And so they've got their Ten Commandments or the Ten Commandments that we find in the Old Testament. And to that, many churches want to add 3,000 more commandments to go along with it. Uh, they, they have their rule books and they have all the new demands for living that they think they have to go by. And if they had all of the new commandments written down in tables of stone, like God had written down the Ten Commandments, well, they'd have enough stones to build the Empire State Building. And people are okay with that. There are a lot of churches that are really okay with that. The people just love to have the list of rules. They like to have something to go by. They get comfortable with the list of rules because that means that they don't really have to think about anything. There's a rule for every situation. And so if they want to know what to do in the next situation, they just go to the rule book, they look it up, and there it is for them exactly what they're supposed to do. Now, with a rule book, with a list of rules, you don't really need to have anything happen to your heart. You you can keep a list of rules. You, You can try to manufacture your holiness by a list of rules. But that's not the gospel of Christ. That's not what God intends. When the gospel permeates your life, you don't need a list of rules. The list, of, list is external. The list is something uh, that you can do, motivated by all of your external things and factors that are around you. But the gospel is never intended to be that way. When you think rightly, the gospel becomes woven into the very fabric of your being. It changes your conduct. And if it doesn't change you, then you've missed it. You really haven't got it. If you're just like you were before, if there's no uh, change that takes place in your life, then you really didn't understand the gospel correctly. I was speaking to uh, someone just the other day, and this person was commenting on my preaching. They weren't really making a complaint, but this person uh, said to me that you don't spend enough time talking or emphasizing holiness. And what I think that this person meant was that I don't, press people on adhering to some kind of a standard. 
You're not going to hear me uh, preaching all the time, uh, you know, every Sunday morning and every Sunday night and Wednesday night about things that you wear and places that you go and people that you hang out with. All of those things are important, but I don't really press those issues very much. I don't talk about it a whole lot. It's not my approach. But I actually do preach holiness all of the time. And my approach is that you will be holy when you get your thinking straightened out. When you get your doctrine right, your practice is going to be right. You don't need somebody to stand over you with a stick and hand you that list of rules and slap you on the hand if you don't. If you get your thinking straightened out, you will be a holy person. You will be a sanctified person. And of course, as I said, that takes your doctrine being right as well. When you understand who God is and you understand what God has done for you and what God expects when your thinking is right, how could that not change you? Now, you know what the proof of all this is? Well, you go back and you take another look at the Sermon on the Mount. The biggest confusion that people have about the Sermon on the Mount is that they think that Jesus had come to set up a new standard. That what Jesus came to do was to do away with the Ten Commandments, to change everything around and give them a new standard to live by. And I suppose that they completely miss what Jesus says in Matthew five seventeen when he said, I did not come to change anything in the law. He said, I came to fulfill the law. And so what Jesus actually did was not to change things, but to correct misinterpretations of the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were good enough all along. There was nothing wrong with the commandments. They didn't need to be changed. And if you get what's already in the commandments, and if you understand that right, you really don't need anything else. You don't have to add anything to it. And so when Jesus expounded the Ten Commandments, what did it do to the people? Well, there are many people, of course, that got saved. And what it did was it changed their wrong practices into right practices. And the simple matter of this is, if you get the concepts right, if you get the doctrine right, if you understand who God is and that you are totally unrighteous and that God is everything that is righteous, it'll change your conduct. It can't help but do that. So you don't have to add anything to the Ten Commandments. You don't need a list of rules for every nitpicky thing that you can possibly imagine. You'll get it right when you understand the commandments right. Well, some people might ask them, well, why do we have any rules at all? I mean, why do we even make mention of, of, of other rules? Uh, for instance, in our, in our church covenant, the covenant that we've made with each other, uh, when you become a, a member of Berean Baptist Church, there are things that are in there. There are things like abstaining from alcohol. The church has agreed that people that are members of Berean Baptist Church shouldn't drink alcohol. So why do we have that in there? And you might ask, well, well, why do we have anything about also in that church covenant about backbiting and about tail-bearing, gossip and things like that? Why do we have that? Do we find that in the Ten Commandments? Well, let me give you an example here. Uh, what the, These other things that we put into the church covenant and places like that are really nothing more but fuller expositions of the Ten Commandments. Now listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 5.42. This is an example. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not away. So what if we put it into the church covenant, a statement like this, that we said, we shall loan to those who ask to borrow. Would you say, well, we can't do that. We, we shouldn't have that kind of a, a statement in the, in the uh, statement of faith because that's not in the Ten Commandments. I mean, if we're going to cut out the rules, the only thing we need is the Ten Commandments. But when Jesus made a statement like that, what was he actually doing? 
Well, he was giving a fuller exposition of the second half of God's law. And remember what that is? Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. That is an expression of the Ten Commandments. So we don't go looking uh, to the gospel as a new set of rules to live by. There aren't any new rules there. You can't manufacture holiness by making up a bunch of rules. And these rules that people try to put in place, they wish that they could find them in the Bible, but they're simply not there. When you let the gospel control every aspect of your life, you don't need a new set of laws. The gospel is not a new set of laws. So if the gospel is not new laws, then what is the gospel? What does it mean to us? Well, the gospel is new action for living. The gospel is the fuel that gets you going. And verse number 8, Paul is talking about thinking the right way. And we notice there that he says things that are true, things honest, things that are just and pure, and on and on he goes. Those are the things that you fill up your tank with. But the fuel is not made to just sit there. It's made for action. I don't know any of the companies that manufacture gasoline that all they intend to do is sit it in storage tanks forever. They intend for it to produce energy. And that's what the gospel is intended to do. It motivates you into action. Let me show you just a moment here uh, what it did to first century Christians. In Acts chapter 17, there's a story about Paul going to the city of Thessalonica. And when Paul went to preach there, he preached for a period of three weeks And there were many, many people who received Christ as Savior. Among the many people who were saved were were Jewish people. There were a lot of converts that were made to Christianity. But in the city, there were a lot of people that were Jews who didn't believe in Christ. And so they became very jealous, and they were upset about this message that Paul was preaching. And so what they did is they were so angry about it that the Bible says that they assaulted the house of a man who had been converted by the name of Jason. Now, I want you to listen to the complaint that they made against Christians. This is in Acts 17, verse number 5. But the Jews which believed not, moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort, and gathered a company, and set all the city on an uproar, and assaulted the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. And when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren under the rulers of the city, crying... These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also. Now, do you see what it says there? The reputation of Christianity had already spread everywhere. These people had already heard about Christians. And the comment was that Christians turned the world upside down. Wherever they went, Christians were preaching, they were giving the gospel, and they were upsetting the status quo all over the Roman Empire. You may remember that story about how Paul went to Ephesus and, and, a, and a riot was sparked there because Paul had been preaching against the use of their making their, their icons, their idols, and their, all the things that they did to the worship of Diana. And so there was a huge uproar because of that. Wherever Paul preached and wherever the gospel went, it upset the status quo. And so they said, these people have turned the world upside down. And that's what the gospel does for us when we really do get it. It energizes us. We, we don't, the gospel is not made for us to sit still. The gospel is made for us to get up and get busy and do something for God. And so you'll find that as you go through the scriptures. You read the first part of the book of Acts. You'll find there that there were thousands of people saved in the city of Jerusalem beginning with the testimony of only 12 men. The gospel energized them. 
So Paul does not say here, think on these things and then leave it at that. It's great to think on these things. But if all you ever do is verse number 8, you haven't really thought hard enough. Verse number 8 will always lead you into verse number 9. And that's the action. So he says in verse number 9, Those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do. The word do there is a very important word. It actually means or comes from a word that means practice. It means this is your practice. This is just the normal activity of your life. It's what you do. The gospel sends you out there to practice the very same things that Paul did. It sends you out there to tell people about Jesus and to live a Christ-like, holy life. The gospel doesn't need 5,000 more rules. It just automatically turns people into holy people who do. People who practice what Christ and Paul practice. Now listen to me for just a moment. If you come to Berean Baptist Church and you come here because you like the doctrine... You come here because you want to hear what Baptists have historically believed and you think that that's correct. And you don't want to have a different doctrine. You want to have the same doctrine that the apostles had and you don't want to compromise the truth and you do want to stand on something and you don't want to hear preaching uh, that, that's mush, mush coming from people like uh, Joel Osteen, panty-waist prosperity preaching. You don't want to hear that kind of thing. If that's your desire, then I say, great, I'm glad that you're here. But I also say that if you come here and you listen to this, and you sit down in the pew, and you're filling up your tank, and you think that you're absorbing this, and you're really getting somewhere, and yet you won't speak to the person who sits next to you at work, and you won't talk to people about the Lord, you won't invite people to come to church, you won't say anything about your faith, then, friends, you just really don't get it. You don't get it because the gospel moves us into action. It does not place us here to sit and just listen to what I have to say. The gospel moves us. Now, there are many people who say, well, we don't want that doctrine. We don't want the doctrine of election. We don't want predestination. We don't want to hear about effectual calling. We don't want Romans 8, 29, and 30. We don't want Ephesians 1, 4. We don't want 2 Thessalonians 2, 13. We don't want Acts 13, 48. We don't want Philippians 2, 13. We don't want any of that. And the reason they say they don't want it is this. They say it destroys soul winning. So we don't want to hear any of that. And do you know why they came to all the wrong conclusions? It's because... They know so many people who believe these doctrines that really are deader than 4 a.m. They've taken the doctrine, and now they are the frozen chosen. And friend, if that's what you are, you just don't really understand the doctrine. You see, getting the doctrine right is not going to yield wrong practice. It must yield the right practice. That's what it did in the Sermon on the Mount. And so, if you really understand it, it'll work here just like it did with the Sermon on the Mount. So if your practice is wrong, if you're sitting still and not doing anything, you just don't get it. Now, I know lots of times people will complain about the door knockers and they stick their nose up at people that go and knock on doors as if there's something wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with going and knocking on somebody's door and telling them about Christ. There's nothing wrong with talking to your neighbor or talking to a person at work about Jesus Christ. If you go with the right motive and you go with the right message, that's exactly what you ought to do. Now, if you got it mixed up about what you're supposed to tell them, then, of course, that would be wrong. But when you've got this down, the doctrines that we teach here do not stop people from giving the gospel. They motivate you for the gospel. 
It's exactly what it's intended to do. And so if you are controlled by the gospel, if you're thinking like verse number 8, it will translate into the action of verse number 9. Now let's go on. Number 2 then is the concepts of the gospel. Those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you. What are those things? Well, we're going to talk about those things in just a moment. And I want to say first about those things that they haven't changed. We call ourselves historic Baptists, and those things have not changed. They've always been the same. I mean, the oldest saint, the ancient saint of the first century, is no different than one in the 17th century. He's no different than one in the 19th century, and certainly ought not to be any different than saints that we have in the 21st century. We have the very same gospel, and that means we have the same concepts. And so anybody who comes along with something else and they say that we need a new doctrine, we need new interpretations of Scripture, you don't need to listen to those people. Why? Because what Paul says is what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me do. Now let me start with that last one. Seen in me do. If you were a first century Christian in Philippi, how would you know about Christ? Would you go down to the family bookstore, Christian family bookstore, and you go down there and just buy a copy of the Bible and begin to read that? Well, if you could, what you'd have to have is a wheelbarrow to take it home or a wagon to take it home because it'd be so huge that you couldn't carry it by yourself. And then when you got it home, you would have to start studying it day after day, week after week, month after month, and year after year, trying to connect it all and understand what it was all about. And the reason you'd have to do that, because there was no chapters, there were no verses. It was just one long manuscript that sort of ran together with a, a break in between the books. And, and so you'd, you'd spend all of your time trying to plow through that. There are no software programs. There are no concordances. There's no way to search through it. The only way to search through it is to search through it. I mean, you just got to climb through it, word by page by page, word by word, page by page, book by book. And it would be a very, very difficult thing to do. And well, that's why one reason why you really need to commend Paul and first century Christians and for many years after that and the way that they knew the Bible and they studied the Bible because that was a moment, I mean, a, 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 put it this way, a gargantuan effort to really learn what the Bible had to say. It, it was not nearly as easy as it is for us in this time and place. But you really don't have to worry about that because you don't even need to think about it because there weren't any Bibles available. You couldn't go down to the bookstore and get one because they didn't have any. So how did you learn about Christ? Well, Paul tells us right here. They had to get their information from somewhere, so where did they get it? He tells us, seen in me do what you've seen in me. He was speaking Christ through his life. He says, what you learned is what you do. And you know what that learned word learned comes from? It's a word that means disciple. He says, I have discipled you. What you have learned, that's what you're supposed to do. What you learned from me. And then he says, what you received. What you received, do. That's speaking about what you have believed in your heart. That's what you have professed to believe. If you believe it, then do it. And I think Paul would say... Well, how am I supposed to know whether you get it or not if you don't do it? I mean, how am I going to tell if you've really taken it into your heart, if you've really received it? If you don't do it, how do I know that you understand this? And the same thing is true today. How are people going to know that you're a Christian if you don't do? How's anybody going to be convinced that 
you really know who Christ is if you don't do. So Paul says, do what you have received, what you have believed in your heart. And then he says, heard. What had they heard? What they had heard was the very same thing that the people in Thessalonica had heard. They'd heard about Christians. They didn't know very much about it yet. Paul was the first one to preach the gospel in Philippi. But no doubt they'd heard about Christians. They'd heard just what the people in Thessalonica heard. The Christians turned the world upside down. They got some kind of strange doctrine that they're preaching. So they heard about it. The reputation preceded them. But also Paul's reputation preceded him. They looked at him and they knew that he was a man who lived a holy life. Here was a man who'd suffered a lot for preaching the gospel of Christ. He, he bore, I'm sure, scars in his body for being stoned so many times and being beaten and being in, in perils of robbers, as he said, being in shipwrecks. I mean, all of that. He had those marks on his body. I mean, the, the reputation went before him, so they heard about Paul. But then he says, seen. And this is not what they have heard. This is what they actually observed by Paul being there. And Paul says, you can observe what I have done. You can see it with your eyes. And what you see in me, do. And the reason that he could say it was because he always put up a good example. He always acted like Christ. He was always giving them a picture of Jesus in the way that he lived. He was never never, uh, an affront to the cause of Christ. He was never tearing down the gospel by his actions and trying to build it up with his words. Actions went along with his words. They were one and the same. And so what Paul did was when he suffered hardships, he didn't let the petty things bother him. He didn't worry about those who came against him and fought against him with the Satan's darts and arrows and all the ways that they treated him. That wasn't important to him. He was only concerned about living for Christ. So he's telling them here, this is what the gospel does for you. When you're thinking right, you don't stop with thinking. You go into action, and he says, what I'm doing is the very same thing that you should be doing. Now, let's go back then to the concepts of the gospel. These things don't change. Where Whatever Paul taught is forever. He spoke under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. What he says will not change. It didn't change in all the time from then until now, and it'll never change. It's always the same till Christ comes back. So what we have learned and received and heard and seen in the apostles is what we are supposed to do. And any other thing than that, you're way off track. Now let me give these to you rather quickly because you're saved, you already know this. You just need to be reminded of it. What is it? What are the concepts of the gospel? Well, first is to know God's glory. You have to get this. Sometimes I'm surprised that people are surprised that they've been to church all of their lives and they've heard preaching from the Word of God and nobody ever got down to emphasizing this very all-important point that we are here for one reason, we are saved for one reason, and that is God's glory. You'd be amazed at the people that I talk to that they've been to church all of their lives and they never heard preaching like that. They never get down to that, that it's all for God's glory. But you have to get that right first. Everything exists for God's glory. Now, the wonderful thing about it is we get to be in on it. But if you ever get this out of balance, you are destined to be mixed up and miserable for your entire life. Because if you think that the world revolves around you and your satisfaction comes from what the world has to offer, then you are going to be miserable all of your life because things are not always going to work out your way. You can't control anything. So you're going to be miserable all the time. 
But when you finally come to the realization that this is all about God and that God is always working things out for His glory and you don't control anything, you don't have to control anything, how could you be anything other than happy? Because you know God's going to take care of it all. God has got it handled. Paul said, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now, we glorify God when we know Him better. And when we know Him better, our lives are geared in that direction all the time. Now, if you glance back at chapter 3 and verse number 10, Paul says there, "...that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being made conformable unto His death." Do you realize that this historic theology that I'm trying to preach to you, it's not really hard to accept. It's not hard to accept at all when you get the foundational premise right. Now, I would submit to you folks that if you think on God's glory, you're never going to come to any conclusion such as that our election in God is a conditional thing. That God looked down through time and he foresaw that we would believe. And based on that, that's why God chose us. You're not going to think like that. You're not going to think in terms of general atonement. You'll understand that Christ gave his life to save people, not not so people would go to hell. Who he died, died for, he always saves, he always redeems. You're not going to come up with any ideas of final apostasy, that you could lose your salvation. You'll never come up with an idea that the grace of God is resistible. You won't think like that. You don't have any problem modifying grace with the word sovereign. It's not a problem with you at all. When your thinking is right, when you get the foundational premise right, that it's God's glory that is at stake, then all of these things fall right into place. Then the next concept of the gospel is to know God's word. Exclusive trust in God's word alone. It's the pursuit of God through the word because the word of God is God's self-revelation. The gospel has never included traditions that are not a part of the written word. And I, and I hope all of you were able to hear Brother Richard Bennett on Sunday, especially in the 10 o'clock hour, that makes it very, very clear that anything that is not in the written word is not binding upon us. God's word is the only thing that's binding. That's where we find the truth. So if God reveals himself through the word only, then where should you spend your time? Spend it in God's word. You can't grow without the scriptures. If you don't have the scriptures, your practice is never going to be right. And so doing, according to the Apostle Paul and all of the apostles, included this very thing. It's the Word of God. You can't think rightly if you fill your mind day after day after day with the junk of this world. You're not going to end up with right practice until you get your thinking straightened out. Think on the right things. Third concept of the gospel is to know sin. The gospel helps us to understand sin correctly and helps us to contemplate sin correctly. Sin has consequences. Sin ruins fellowship. Sin leaves us unfulfilled. Sin causes grief. Sin ruins our joy. And so it's no wonder that the apostles didn't stop talking about salvation and then stop talking about sin. The sin question was always before them. They're always dealing with sin. They're always dealing with it because the gospel makes us so much more acutely aware of our sin. When you get it, you understand what sin is. So doing is always concerned with eliminating sin in our lives. 
The gospel brings us discipline, and discipline always brings with it good habits. Fourthly, a concept of the gospel is to know the world. To know the world. And by that I mean knowing your relationship to the world. And I think we covered that extensively when we looked at the end of chapter 3 and we talked about our citizenship. We're not supposed to try and hold on to anything that's in this world. We're passing through here. We're dwelling in tents, the Word of God says. In tabernacles, in tents. We are just sojourning in the world. And so we don't want to hang on to things and get attached to things that are in the world because the gospel teaches us that we're leaving this world. And anything that we get attached to here will just simply deter us from the task that God has given You see, if you don't have higher aspirations for what comes after this life, and if you're constantly holding on to what the world has, and that's your biggest concern, your material things and all the stuff that you have, all the stuff that you don't even know what to do with most of the time, if that's your big concern and you don't have higher aspirations, then again, you haven't gotten the gospel. You're not thinking straight. If you're not using the world's resources for only one, for these two things, and that is how to serve God better with what God gives you, and how to help other people with what God gives you, then you really don't understand the gospel. Now, curiously, those two statements are an underlying theme of the Ten Commandments themselves. That covers the two divisions of the law. We don't need an extra set of principles to live by. It's all covered in a correct relationship between the law and the gospel. Now, lastly, this concept of the gospel is to live in expectation. The gospel is to live in glorious expectation. I want you to listen to this marvelous parallel scripture that we have in Titus chapter 2. It says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Doesn't that sum the whole thing up perfectly? The grace of God that bringeth salvation. What is that? That's the gospel. And what does the gospel do? Does it teach us to hear and then sit on what we've heard? No. The gospel reaches right into our living. It produces right practice. This scripture says, teaching us to deny ungodliness, shunning worldly lust, to live righteously and godly. And then what does it say? It causes us to live in expectation, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, friends, if your thinking doesn't yield this, you're not thinking right. You just don't get it. If you need something else besides the gospel, if you need rule book upon rule book to live by, and you want to mechanically try to manufacture your holiness, you just don't get it. I can stand up here and I can preach and I can preach and I can preach to you. I can preach to you until Obama does something right. And if you haven't got your thinking right, if you haven't, if you haven't really got this together about what you're thinking right, you're never going to get any of the rest of it. You've got to think on the right things. Now, let me close with this. I was uh, recently reading in Christianity Today about Liberty University. Uh, Liberty University is the... Uh, 
school that was started by Jerry Falwell in Lynchburg, Virginia. And now it's the largest Christian university in the country. There was an article in Christianity Today about Liberty University, and they were talking about how that Liberty accepts non-Christian students. And they were interviewing this young lady that was a Hindu from India. Now, I want to quote from the magazine, and also quoting from this young lady that was a Hindu student. She says, Jesus is one of the many gods. Satula 27 says, matter-of-factly, I tell my professors I'm still unsaved, and it has never been a conflict. I'm too old to be convinced to start a new religion. Then the magazine says, nonetheless, she says that she has no problem abiding by LU's, that's Liberty University's well-known code of conduct, the Liberty Way. Now, if you've ever been familiar with that school, um, you'll hear that often around them talking about the Liberty Way. That's the code of conduct. Now, what would you say that that code of conduct is? I would think that It's something Christian, obviously. And I would think that it's probably something very biblical. And you'll notice here that this young lady says, or the magazine says, she has no problem living by the code of conduct. And then it says also that she believes that Jesus is one of the many gods. And so she can take Jesus as one of the many gods, one of her gods, and at the same time say that she can live by the code of conduct. Now, that whole thing's repulsive to me. But, but, you know, that is really, when you get down to it, the attitude of many evangelical fundamental Christians. Because what they've done is they've just tacked Jesus on to a list of activities that they do. And they had a code of conduct that they live by. Friends, that is not the gospel. It is not right thinking. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not a code of conduct. The gospel of Christ, friends, is a way of life. The gospel is you. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, the gospel is you. That's what you are. It's the only thing that you are. It permeates, it saturates, it infiltrates, it illuminates every part of your being. It's not something that you can add on. Now, Paul says here that right thinking... True gospel thinking will always yield the right practice. You do what you have learned and received and heard and seen because that's who you are. That's what you are. And if you stop short of this, if you stop short of living a, good, a godly life, and if you stop short of being a witness for Jesus Christ, if you stop short of those things, you didn't get it. You just don't understand it. Now, you might think again that you're filling your tank every time that you come here, but you're not doing anything with the fuel. It's sitting in the tank, and if it's just sitting in the tank, you just don't understand what it's designed to do. The gospel is designed to move us into action. And when you're thinking rightly, you'll always do rightly. Right thinking yields right practice. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for time we've spent together tonight. Just praise your name, Lord, for the Apostle Paul and and for the truths that we learn from the Word, the Holy Spirit inspiration of these words. And Lord, I just pray that we do get it, we do understand it, that we just don't sit and listen to doctrine and listen to preaching and come time after time after time and never have it translate into action, never have it 
causes to speak to someone in, to, about Christ or to affect what we do in our everyday living, Lord, I just pray that we do get it. Bless this invitation time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's please stand as we sing. Thank you.